According to Spencer Conway, the adventure really begins when you turn off the normal route. And that's just what he does every time. Even though many times it gets him and his wife, Kathy, into more trouble than he bargains for. It's kind of like a cat, you know, like the nine lives, only I think Spencer might have more. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Simon Manicum. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. John Thomas. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com It must have been a, a slow day in the classroom, sitting in front of all those unenthused students day after day. At least that's what I'm imagining. Or, or many people who know him might say that this is really what he was meant to do. Whatever the catalyst, I don't know. But at some point, an idea was hatched. And that was to circumnavigate Africa on a motorcycle. Then write a book about it. Then maybe, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. Go back to teaching, I'm not sure. But once he got a taste for this kind of high adventure, there was no turning back. Spencer Conway has spent more than a decade on his quest to circumnavigate every continent by motorcycle. But it's not a race for him. He wants to get to know all the places he passes through and the people that live in it. That slows things down a lot, as you can imagine. Recently, him and his wife, Kathy, completed the circumnavigation of South America. And today we're going to get some of those stories of the adventures that these two intrepid travelers managed to get themselves into and then out of some just by the seat of their pants. My name is Spencer Conway and uh, I'm from Swaziland, which is actually now known as Eswatini in Southern Africa, a small country next to South Africa. And um, I'm an adventure motorcyclist. That's my profession. Spencer, welcome back. Thank you, Jim. It's always really nice to be on here. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm sorry if you if uh, you get some bad sound, but I'm, I'm stuck in a little room um, in Mexico at the moment. That's kind of the norm for you, though, isn't it? Stuck in a room. Because, I mean, I think it was another time we talked when you guys were sitting in some hot, sweaty place. I think it was Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. By coincidence, I mean, I've, I've been off to England since we last spoke to do a couple of shows over there. Um, but uh, we came back to this um, same town, um, Puerto Escondido in the south, because it's, it's a good base for us at the moment. 
<laughs> so you're um you're in Mexico as you said now. You said that your your job is an adventure motorcyclist. Can you talk yeah. about that? What is that? Yeah, sure. It's a difficult one for people to to click onto. But uh, I was a teacher, um, and uh, I taught for about fifteen years in the Seychelles, in South Africa, in England. But I, it it just wasn't for me. Um, I, I don't like the suit and tie thing. I don't be, like being inside. So I made a radical decision in 2009 to um, try and circumnavigate Africa. And the whole idea at the beginning was just to go around and write a book. That was my idea. Uh, but it, um, it sort of took off a bit. And I think I discussed it with you in, in another show. Uh, it took off really well. And uh, I decided to give up the teaching permanently. And I got a TV series out of that. And then after that, continued on to do, I did, obviously, Africa, I did it solo. But then off to South America, so did uh, South and Central America as well, which was also very successful. Um, when people say adventure motorcyclist is your job, it's, it's difficult to explain. It's a combination of lots of things, Jim. It's writing, it's doing articles, it's trying to organise programmes. And the most important thing is uh, enjoying the world, um, seeing the world and trying to pay for it, really. <laughs> That's always the key, isn't it? Trying, trying to pay for it. Cause basically it's like you're like, you're on a vacation in a way. And we'll talk more about this cause I want to ask you about this, but you're, it's sort of like being sure. on a vacation and getting paid kind of. Oh, I wish it was like that, but I, I do know what you're saying, but it's funny. We were discussing this last night uh, about how it's changed, how adventure motorcycling went through a very, very rough patch. Obviously I hate mentioning the dreaded word COVID, but it, it, it affected a lot of people. Um, I mean, obviously, in the adventure riding world, if you can't ride, <laughs> there's no adventure. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have struggled. I know some magazines. That, um, I mean, I've got some good friends that uh, have had to give it up. Two companies, um, they're now doing sort of construction and building and that kind of thing. And that was to get them through the rough patch. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't complain uh, that much because it's an incredible job. And a lot of people in the world have suffered because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Your goal is to be the first person to circumnavigate all continents. Is that by motorcycle? Is that part of that goal? Yeah, that's absolutely it, Jim. Uh, I've also been struggling, obviously, with, um, with the borders closed. I've, I've been deciding whether to go to Asia. But, I mean, looking at it, the, there are big border problems. There are still still restrictions around Asia. So I've been playing it by ear. It's, it's also given me a lot of a lot of chance to get to know Mexico. So we've been doing a couple of things over here. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to sort out. I don't know if you remember, I set up a motor camp in Ecuador. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, Gemini? I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, obviously because I couldn't buy the land that that failed over there. So uh, that's another string in my bow is that I'm trying to set up a motor camp over here in Mexico as well, because I really believe in it. And uh, when I finish circumnavigating and I'm an old man, um, we're going to need something to back up on. <laughs> that's the... That's smart to look ahead. <laughs> well, you have to, you know, it's um, it's not a huge money spinner, is it? We all know that, uh, adventure motorcycling. Most mm -hmm. people just get through. Um, so, yeah, I've got to have something for, for when I'm older, but I've still got a, a long way. As you know, I've done the whole of Africa, the whole of Central and South America, and uh, now Mexico. So, yeah, uh, on from here. So that's that's one thing that we've been doing. We've we've done about thirty five thousand kilometers in Mexico, 
which is actually pretty incredible. I mean, it is a very big country, um, but we've got to know it really, really well. So that's, that's one idea is uh, for the future. But uh, uh, a thing that I'm going to do very, very soon, um, actually within the next couple of days, there, have you ever heard of the Raramuri Runners? Oh, I, no, I, I, I don't know the name, but I think I know what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, uh, um, I, I just came across a, a book called Born to Run right. by a guy called yeah. Chris McDougall. And uh, actually, my dad had it because my dad's a long distance runner. So he buys all those sort of things. So I went over, I had a look at it. And I had heard of these guys, the Raramuri. Uh, and w- what it is, basically, it's in the 1600s, obviously, with the Spanish conquest um, of Mexico, there, was, there were big wars over here. And uh, these people were based in Chihuahua. Obviously, you know, you've heard of the famous dogs, Chihuahuas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the area. And it's, it's a runoff of the Grand Canyon area. It's down into Copper Canyon which number one is an incredible riding area. And I haven't been yet. Obviously, I've been looking at all the info. But on top of that, it's also where the Raramuri runners live. Um, and what happened in the 1600s was uh, they got attacked by the Spanish and they split into two basic groups. The one group kind of accepted Christianity and got to, you know, um, in with the, the Spanish society there. But the others decided to disappear into, into, into the mountains in Chihuahua, into the Sierra Madre, where it's very, very inaccessible. Um, and they actually live in caves uh, or ho- hollowed out areas in, in rock walls. Uh, they don't have permanent structures. They're basically on the move all the time. But so uh, these guys managed to hide from the Spanish. There's between 50 and 70,000 of them. They still have a, their traditional language. But um, they are very, very well known for long distance running. And what they used to do is, uh, because their communities were quite split up and they were obviously just paths, um, to, to pass messages or to, you know, if there was problems or, or for hunting or whatever, they used to run. And uh, it was found out that these guys used to run between 200 and 300 miles at a time. So, I mean, on a motorbike, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. So uh, my aim, um, actually, we're leaving tomorrow, uh, is to go up there to to, um, the Copper Canyons. It's about 2,000 kilometers from here in total. And to try and get in touch with these guys. It's going to be a little bit difficult because, uh, unfortunately, it's a bit of a hot spot. Uh, The Copper Canyons, it's an area where they grow marijuana and opium. Um, so you've got to be a little bit careful. And unfortunately, uh, the Raramuri, as I was reading in the book, they have sort of been exploited in a way by the cartels. Obviously, they're brilliant runners. So they're using them as drug mules to, um, to get across to the US, which is very sad. But um, I just think it's an amazing story, these guys living in these, in these caves and uh, everything is traditional and their farming is traditional, their clothing is traditional. And they've kept really, really isolated, which is really difficult in the world today. As you know, you know, the world's getting smaller and smaller. So I just want to get up there and see if I can get to interview um, some of these guys and even go for a run with them. Wow. Wow. That'd be, that'd be really interesting. We, we had um, Sterling Noreen, filmmaker Sterling, on some years ago, and he was talking about that story. He went, he did a film on it. On oh, did he indeed? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fantastic because that's something that I can look up then. Yeah, yeah, you should um, you should do that. I'll, I'll see if I can find that that for you. But um, yeah, that'd that, be fantastic. 
Yeah, it's just I like to, I mean, I love the adventure motorcycling. I love seeing the world, et cetera, et cetera. But I just want, I, I want to add an element of, uh, of things. And, and as you know, from our last chat, I'm really into extreme sports and um, that kind of thing. So the Raramuri was just right up my alley, the perfect thing to sort of check up on. I had mentioned that you you want to be the first person to circumnavigate all continents. Now, and most people agree there's there's seven continents that we have: North America, we've got South America, Europe, yep. Asia, Africa, uh, Australia, and then Antarctica. Now, you mentioned you've already done Africa. You did Africa. You wrote a book about yes. it. Yes. And that was the Japanese speaking curtain maker. You wrote about that, and of That's course, right. various films and things like that. All, all kinds of articles. Sure. So that's Africa. You've done South America and Mexico. Yes. You've done extensively, obviously, at 35,000 yeah. kilometers. Is 35,000 kilometers or miles? Um, 35,000 kilometers. So that's a lot of riding in one spot. No, absolutely. And of course, we've also done Central America. Right, in Central America. Okay, so... Yeah, but C Central America was a little bit of a haze because uh, obviously we did the whole of South and then we came into Panama, and as I discussed with you in a previous interview, that was where we had the kidnapping Yeah. Um, in Panama. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. That's that's quite yeah. a story. And, and I mean, that's something I'll never forget in the fact that we almost kind of missed Central America totally. We were in a kind of mind frame where we just wanted to ride and get away as far away from as we could from Panama. And so... You know, I, I talk about having done Africa, having done South America, having done Central, but I feel like a bit of a con man when I say Central. I have done it, but I'm not one of these people that just likes to tick it off and go, oh, I've made it, I've been there, I've done that. I don't really feel like I know um, Central America very well. So, uh, yeah, hoping to go back there at some point. How much riding does it take to, to really know a place? And I, I know this is all subjective to each person you speak to, but for you, how how do you know when you've actually done enough to say, yeah, okay, I did that? Oh, sure. It's a really difficult one because, I mean, for example, South America, I'm sure you're aware that uh, Brazil is actually basically half of South America. Um, all the other countries in South America added together is about the same surface area as Brazil. So, for example, in Central, you can, you can go through um, Costa Rica, for example, in one day. If you want to, you can go from border to border, and that's that. Um, and you wouldn't know the place at all. So often it's the geographical element that affects it. Uh, I mean, Brazil took a good three, four months to get through. Uh, so, yeah, depending on the size of the place, it's a very difficult, difficult thing to answer. I don't think you ever get to know anywhere. Um, we met a couple that were overlanding in South America. They were in a big, um, uh, a big truck. And uh, we said, how long have you guys been going? And they said, oh, no, seven years. And I was like, seven years? And they said, yeah, yeah, if you do it in reverse, it's totally different. <laughs> and I, I kind of knew what they meant, you know. You can go through an area that you've been through before and it, you can have a totally different experience. You might, you might meet people that you hadn't met before. Then there'll be an experience that you didn't have before or you might get lost on a road you hadn't been on before. But everywhere kind of seems new all the time to me. So I'll never be satiated. I'll never be totally happy. But that I, I just need to focus on 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 getting to every continent because I'm 55. I'm 56 now, um, and time does run along quickly. So what do you do when you go into a country? Do you have a, a set route that you're planning to do, or set things that you want to see? 
No, never, ever have a route. Uh, the only route I have is to circumnavigate. So it's basically arrive at the top in Colombia, head south um, around the coast and then up the other coast and back. But when we're in a particular country, it's just whatever grabs one's interest, whether it's a beautiful ride or an interesting cultural thing. Or uh, I just prefer to play it by ear because um, if you do too much, if you do too much research, too much reading, it, it kind of narrows your perspective. Sometimes I do believe that you can overread. Um, a lot of people get very scared. I mean, I get it constantly about Mexico. Uh, obviously, Mexico has uh, some very bad um, reputations about drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but and people are asking me about it all the time. But I think they read too much and, and worry too much. And it's an incredible country. I've been here three years. And it's just wonderful. Well, we're, I was talking about the, the countries that you want to circum or the uh, continents that you want to circumnavigate. How are you going to do Antarctica? Have you have you thought that far ahead yet? You know, I haven't at all. Uh, it looks like the next one is going to be heading straight from here um, up through the states uh, and obviously Canada and Alaska. But I mean, even people people talking about the north of Canada, you got to time it right to even get to any of those roads, don't you? Sure. Yeah. Um, and also clothing, having having everything sorted. You know, you need the right gear. Um, I, I'm going to need snow tires, I, uh, chains. I, I just don't know. Uh, it, I'll I'll come to it when I come to it. Basically, I was just really pleased that I I managed to do Africa first, because uh, in a sense, I think a lot of people will agree with me. Adventure riders, it's one of the toughest, if not the toughest, continent. Uh, just because there are very, very tough roads. The infrastructure is not as strong. Um, there's some dodgy areas. So I was, I was really pleased I did that first because uh, it gave me the strength and conviction that, that I could do it. And it made it so much more enjoyable going through South and Central after that. How much time did you spend, like time-wise, circumnavigating South America? Uh, South America was actually over two years. Over two years, wow. Uh, that's quite yeah, a while, and then you certainly get a feel for things. You you did find when you in your travels for South America, um, you found things that I guess a lot of people don't. I mean, if you're a, a, a tourist, you're only going to see th certain things. Even if you're an adventure motorcyclist and you stick to the, the Pan American Highway, you're going to see certain things. You've a tendency to drift off to the sides, and you found out a bit about drugs with South America. Can you talk about that? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, well, as far as drifting away from things, uh, very quickly, I mean, I don't know if you're aware that we went straight through the center of the Amazon. Um, so that was from uh, east to west. That was probably the absolute highlight of it. Uh, that's, it's a place called the Ghost Road, the BR319. And uh, to me, that, that was the highlight. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really like talking about drugs, but... Uh, for example, we were in um, in Colombia in a place called the Barrio of No Return. It's a, a sort of a, a slummy sort of area that you shouldn't go into. But um, we, we, we went in there and uh, strangely enough, there were uh, naked women uh, standing on the side of the road. Uh, they were prostitutes, basically. But it was such an odd situation because you had people with their briefcases going off to work and you had the prostitutes um, standing there with no clothes on. N naked. Um, you're, you're talking no clothes. To to totally naked. Yeah, totally naked. So very, very surreal. So Kathy and I decided that we were going to go in there and uh, try and try and film, um, and we did. And obviously, from a negative point of view, it, it's it's a very, very dodgy area. There's a lot of 
uh, crack cocaine um, uh, and yeah, very negative in certain places, but it was just so interesting to go in there and film. But uh, I always feel guilty when I talk about drugs and the drug problems because South America and Central America are so much more than that, and Mexico as well. But um, yeah, a apart from going off the beaten path, like you said, you can do all of these countries as a tourist. But uh, I mean, for example, Venezuela, we had to wait three weeks um, to, to get through. And in fact, um, when we got to the other side to cross into Colombia, um, it was impossible. No cars or vehicles had been through there for years and years. Um, unfortunately, I needed a tire. So uh, I, I think I might have mentioned this to you, this chap. Uh, I went over, first of all, to Colombia um, to try and get a tire. And I bought one. But you're not allowed to import new things into Colombia. So I rolled it in some dirt and in some water and in a puddle and tried to walk across the bridge. And uh, I got stopped by the Colombian customs and they were like, I know what you've done. You've bought a brand new tire and covered it in mud. I'm afraid you're not bringing that in here. So um, I, I, I went back, I'd failed, but it was hundred and something dollars for this, this tire and I didn't want to lose it. And uh, yeah, this guy came up to me uh, and he had one leg and he said to me, don't worry, I can take this through. So I walked back to Venezuela and he did. He, uh, he went underneath the bridge, went through the river with one leg um, he had the tire over his head, like a sort of a necklace. And um, yeah, he popped up the other side and he had my tire for me, which was absolutely fantastic, really. And I, I think he was kind of used to doing it because he, he waved to the customs and gave them the rude finger and they didn't look that upset. So I think it's, it's his little way of making some money. <laughs> wow. but, it, but it's those kind of experiences. You know, you talk about tourism. Yes, uh, the Pan America highway is amazing but it's not for me i you often feel that you you could almost be in any country i mean uh, part of uh, the section through through colombia where it goes down south there, there are huge uh, barricades on either side of the motorway and you can't really see anything so you could be on a motorway anywhere in the world so that the pan america is wonderful to get a glimpse of what you can see um but for me, I prefer to go off-road. I prefer to go into deserts, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and difficult places like um, Venezuela, for example. Because everybody, everybody we spoke to said, don't, don't go there. Don't go to Venezuela. And it ended up being one of the best experiences. Why? Why is it the best experience? Okay. Uh, it's a very, very strange country. When a country collapses, you... You've got to be there to kind of experience it. For example, all the supermarkets are open, um, but they're just full of toilet paper. There's nothing. There are no products. Um, we went through with a very little bit of money, just thinking in my total naivety and ignorance, I had a, my credit card hidden away and just a tiny bit of cash. Went to the cash machines, empty, uh, broken, you know, whatever, hadn't been used for years. So had to had to try and get some cash, and uh, we changed. I think it was fifty dollars, and we ended up with like a suitcase of money because of inflation. Mm, right. So you're you're involved in this really weird society where the shops are not running, the banks are not running, uh, money's you know money's not around, and people just get through. It's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, the people, that's what made it for me. They they are just so positive. 
A, a strange situation in Venezuela is it's got one of the biggest oil reserves in, in the world, um, but it, it's sort of been sanctioned and vetoed. And now the situation is that you queue for up to eight hours to get petrol. But the Venezuelans have sort of adapted again. People are given days off work. So, for example, they can have petrol day on a Thursday because they know that they're going to be queuing all day to get petrol. And what they do is they just set up a little party. They have barbecues off the back of their pickup trucks. Everyone gets out of their cars and just chats to each other. Whereas, you know, if you're in a, in a, in a different society where everything's got to be done in two minutes and everyone gets all upset, uh, that kind of philosophy doesn't work. You have to have patience and try and make the best of a bad situation. But uh, it, was, it was the positivity of the people um, in a very dire situation. I'm not interested in politics. It's just that they've got a dodgy president, that's all. Um, their positivity in, in keeping going and, and just making money how they can. And the welcome that we got, obviously, because we were pretty much the first tourists to go there for a couple of years. And on top of that, Venezuela is a very, very beautiful riding country. Um, uh, beautiful, beautiful mountains. I mean, on the way into San Cristobal, which is the border with Colombia, uh, basically what they have is they have these plantations of different colored flowers, but they light up all the flowers at night in the color of those particular flowers. So when you're riding down into the main city, you're just surrounded by these thousands and thousands of colors. Absolutely stunning. And when you come, first come into um, Venezuela, you're straight into a national park with over 100 waterfalls, beautiful, curvy, um, dirt off-roads. So, yeah, stunning place, beautiful country, beautiful people, dodgy government, basically. They're lining up for fuel like that. Do they not see you as a foreigner taking their fuel and making the lineup longer? Uh, th no, interesting point. The strangest thing is that when you do actually get there, fuel is free. <laughs> we, 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 it, it was shocking. Um, so um, obviously I've got my Tenere, um, so that takes 23 litres, uh, which is pretty big tank for a motorbike. But uh, when, I, when I arrived uh, after my five hours of waiting, I, I got my, my fuel and I said, how much? And he just looked at me as I was a bit mad and he was like, no, motorbikes don't pay for fuel. So uh, it's... It's a strange, strange situation that, you know, the normal, the normal way that uh, societies run, it's just totally off the wall. Uh, the reason is that petrol is so damn cheap that it's not even worth charging motorcycles who take 20 litres, whereas the rest of the, of the society is not working at all. So, yeah, very, very difficult to explain to people what it's like when a, when a country's actually collapsing. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's surprising that the gas stations are even still working. You know, I mean, if they're no, making no, exactly. so little money. I mean, there are, there are a lot of ghost gas stations as well. Um, absolutely. And um, other, other problem, talking about uh, borders, of course, when we came in from the south, that was quite easy because that was the only border that was open. And that was from Brazil. And uh, we went through all the way to the other side of Venezuela. So that was actually going to be the end of our circumnavigation. We just had to get from the border to Bogota, which was 200 kilometers. So absolutely brilliant. We've done it. We've circumnavigated South America, but we couldn't get the bike through. It was absolutely impossible. They'd had no vehicles. So we did this massive, massive detour 
um, and went all the way back through Venezuela and then went uh, straight through the Amazon, which is incredible, and then came out in, um, in Peru. You know, we mentioned that you're you're doing this. This is what you do. So you're not really on a on a time schedule, are you, or, or are you for filming? Because I know you're filming this. Sure. So are are you on a deadline? Do you have a certain time to be in South America, Central America, et cetera, et cetera? Um, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a difficult one. The time schedule's money, Jim. Really, like everybody and everybody's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I, I need to get around because the world is massive. So to be able to circumnavigate all the other continents is going gonna, is gonna to take, an, I reckon, another 15 to 20 years. When you say money, you mean because you need to get a film set done? Is that the way you do it? Like you do a film set, for instance, for South America, and then you, you sell that, and that's how you're getting money? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty much that. But I mean, it, it, there are some incredible places where you could just say, oh, well, this is so beautiful. I'm just going to sit here for a few weeks. But it costs money. Um, you know, we've all got to survive, we've all got to eat. Uh, and then there's all the, the added things, you know, of course, it's swings and roundabouts because with motor- adventure motorcycling doing what I do, you don't have rent, you don't pay bills, you don't have gas and electricity, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's all the other things, there's all the breakdowns, uh, there's all paying for visas, there's uh, insurance, there's new tires, there's, you know, it, it, it's constant. And yeah, unfortunately, I, I've uh, had to sort of retire my motorcycle. What? Yes, I, you know my Yamaha XT660? Yeah, this is the bike you've it, ridden all up until now, which has, oh, I don't this know This is many. the bike, yeah, this is the bike that's done 177,000 kilometers um, and did all of Africa, all of South, all of Central and all of Mexico. But it, it's, it became more and more unreliable and I started throwing money at it almost to the point that I bought it again, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. replacing everything. And when you are going off into deserts or into the Salado Uni or, you know, somewhere, somewhere quite remote, and that's in the back of your mind, you really, you really can't focus. So what I've done is, um, it, it, from here, Mexico to the UK, it costs about 1,500 quid, 1,500 pounds to get the motorbike over. Um, with a, a traditional freight company or whatever. Uh, so I found a, a, a very good idea, um, and I actually got it from Ed March. Do you, do you, are you aware of Ed March? Sure, we had him on the show many, many years ago. Okay, cool, and he's very funny. Uh, what he did was he broke up his C90, his Honda Cub, and he put it in a suitcase, and he just carried it across customs, <laughs> and he managed to get away with it. And I remembered this. This was in Vietnam or somewhere. I can't remember where he was. I remember this and I thought, okay, well, why, why not? Why don't I do something like that? So what I've done is I've broken my bike up and I've put it in five um, cardboard boxes and I'm sending it to a traditional post and it's cost a quarter of the money. So I thought that was a, a, a clever little idea. Um, the only thing that's sitting here and it's actually um, an ornament, it's holding a plant, is the frame of my motorbike. Mm. And what are you going to do I've with got that? that I've got that sitting here. That's going to go over as well. Uh, so um, when I get when when the bike, all the parts arrive back in the UK, I'll rebuild it and and use it for displays for for shows, and um, possibly use it again for another continent once I've, I've really jacked it up. 
that that's an interesting way to do it, but I'm not sure that's a real good way for someone else to consider <laughs> shipping their bike to save a little money because if you lose one package, that could create quite a problem. That absolutely, absolutely. It's the risk worth taking. But it it finally became a headache and a chap that had been following me on social media in Mexico uh, actually had a Yamaha XC660Z for sale, the same bike I have right now. Um, so I drove up and bought it. Oh, so you bought another used bike though, not a, not a brand yes. new one. Because I think at one point, you weren't you talking with the manufacturer or something about this? Yeah, this is a complicated one because um, I have the, the Tenere T7 at home. Um, but I, I, I mentioned it to you before, Jim. I, I, I want to try and use this 660, even though it's the second one. <laughs> I just want a 660 to get around the world. And I'm so used to it and Kathy's so used to it. And it becomes part of you. I mean, she's sitting on the back filming, uh, bouncing along on these funny roads and and she's very sensitive to what bike we're on. She knows when the tire pressure is not right. She knows when the brakes are grinding. She just knows it like the back of her hand, as do I. And uh, you stick with what you know, don't you? And we're both super comfortable on the bike. It's a very tall bike. We're both very tall. Um, it's great for off-road, which we love the most. So, yeah, just going just gonna to stick with that. I mean, the T7's got a 16-litre tank. Um, I need my 23-litre tank. You said there's 177,000, I think you said, uh, kilometers on the bike. I think you did, I think you've done 134 countries or something like that with that bike, haven't you? Yeah, it's 136. 136 now. countries with, with the bike. Yeah. So it must be really sad to see that bike go. And It's and really sad. It is really sad. But at the same time, I mean, I know I will have it rebuilt for the Overland show. I'll have it rebuilt for the ABR show. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, also just to, to photograph it, 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 it looks so great. That's the thing. It's got its hundred stickers on it, all the flags of the different countries. And it's wonderful because it becomes a talking point, doesn't it? I mean, all motorbikes become a talking point, as you know. Sure. But it's just such a lovely way. You, you stop at a shop to get a glass of water or whatever. And you know that when you come out, there's going to be someone standing by the bike. And I'm almost disappointed when there isn't someone standing by the bike. Oh because it's either a biker or it's someone that's really into traveling or, and you, you find you end up hooking up and, um, you know, staying in touch and some remain friends forever. And, and some it's just a fleeting, a fleeting meeting, but, uh, having all those flags on that old bike was just a, a, a wonderful thing. Well, and um, that's the thing when you start, it's like starting again now. So now you've got a bike that doesn't really look like anything, you know? And so how do you do that? Like, because you've even you've had the same packs and stuff. I know you keep stuff for a very long time. I really like the look of well-worn things. And I like the fact that they've been through so much with you. But what do you do with this bike? How do you make this bike sort of fit in with you? Yeah, you're, you're totally right about this. People who are listening that don't ride bikes must think we're mad. But yeah, <laughs> you get totally attached to it. Uh, what I've done is, I've, obviously, I've got the panniers. So I've put the old panniers on, onto the new bike. So it's got those stickers and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing there. Um and I've already, I've racked up 20,000 kilometers on it already. Oh. So, you know, it's got its dirt all over it. Uh, as you know, I'm not a fan of washing bikes. <laughs> um, my, my other bike got washed twice in 11 years and that was at customs. So, um, yeah, it, it might've lasted a bit longer if I looked after it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, it's, it, I'm chuffed to have this new bike, but yeah, it, it looks a little bit posh for me. So you, you have some sponsors though, and uh, obviously that bike is not sponsored, but you have sponsors. 
Yeah, we have. And uh, yeah, our sponsor is our main sponsor. We've just received a huge package. It's just like Christmas from Climb, um, who are based in the States. And we've got to drive up there and see them. So uh, we'll go up there and, and uh, do some do some promotion with them before I come up and see you see you in the flesh as well. Wow, that sounds good. So you're going to be wearing all brand new Climb gear with a different motorcycle. You're not going to have the same look. I know it's terrible, isn't it? Well, it certainly will oh. make things different. You know, would you um you ro- you rock up to a border or something? You just look completely different. You don't look like you know the Spencer Conway that's been traveling for I don't know how many years has it been seven. Yeah, no, I I, I don't like it. Thirteen years, I don't like years. it myself. I, I I still have the uh, the original army sausage bag, the green sausage bag, mm-hmm. um, which is basically held together with duct tape. But, and, and that's what Kathy leans against. That's where her back goes. So we have the, the two panniers, uh, and then we've got the sausage bag across the back, and it's just a little, a little rest for her leaning against that, um, and the original panniers. And I've, I've stuck some stickers on already and, you know, dirtied up the bike through riding. So, no, I'm not going to look the same, but uh, the climb gear will quickly get dirty, and uh, we'll be back to the normal look hopefully in a year or so. Having sponsors doesn't always work out. Uh, as far as um, one of your sponsors got you attacked by a bird, can, can you tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about some things. Stay with us when we come back. We've got a lot more stories, including losing their campsite in the salt flats of Bolivia, a naked border crossing guard, a, uh, a bit of a funny con that goes, well, th- there's a lot. Stay with us. The other day I was working on my bike and I had to head into town. It was a beautiful day. So the bike was a choice, of course. I had this list of things that I had to get while I was in town. And it wasn't until I got down the road that it suddenly struck me I'd forgot to put something back on the bike that I'd taken off while I was doing the work. Then I made a detour on this road and then I made another detour and, well, more of them. And this is me getting sidetracked. It happens a lot. It's a real problem I have. But I ended up out for much longer than I planned But as I rode, I found myself getting a little frustrated with this one tiny little thing I forgot to put back on my bike. I didn't think it was a big deal. But then I realized just how much I enjoyed using it. It was my Atlas throttle lock. This tiny piece of beautifully crafted mechanism that sits so unobtrusively on my handlebar had become such a regularly used item that I actually forgot how much I'm using it until it wasn't there. I can't tell you how many times I reached out with my thumb expecting that firm positive feedback of the engage button when I I wanted a break for my wrist. But the other thing that I noticed it became very apparent that day was how much I use it to give my hand a rest so that I'm not gripping the throttle all the time, that, that squeeze action that you have. So when I, when I engage the Atlas throttle lock, I can sort of relax my hand, even if I'm keeping it in that same position, even if I'm not like from the outside, you wouldn't know any difference. It makes a big difference. I must've made 20 mental notes to make sure that when I get home, I get my Atlas throttle lock back on. This little device will change the way you ride. Have a look at it. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. 
See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops makes all kinds of lighting products, especially designed for us riders. From auxiliary lighting to LED headlights to specialty things like their Evo safety turn signals. These I love. Um, I have them on my bike. The Evo safety turn signal inserts, um, they, they replace your stock turn signals front and back. And, you know, most most stock to turn signals, they only come on when you put your signal on. They're not actually driving lights. So these become driving lights in the front. They're super bright white driving lights. In the back, they're red. Uh, in the front, they turn orange and become signals when you put your signal on. And in the back, they also signal, but when you they, uh, they signal in red and they come on with your brakes and they are stunningly bright. Like talk about seeing, being seen. These things punch holes through the darkness and they command attention in the daytime. So making drivers aware of you is obviously a huge part of road safety. The Evo Safety Turn Signal Inserts. I'm going to give you the website for it. While you're there at the website, have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch Auxiliary Lights. These little things, these are small enough to fit just about anywhere on any bike because a lot of bikes you have trouble fitting the lights in. These little things will fit in anywhere and they are powerhouses. Great for daytime awareness and stunning on a dark road. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. You know, there's so many products that look the part, feel the part, but when you, you get them home, the cheapness, you know, starts to seep out. You've had them. Parts fall off and break and the performance is not there. Why is that, you ask? You know the answer. Because the company's all about selling and that's it. They have no skin in the game, so to speak. So when I say IMS Products makes incredible foot pegs for us adventure riders, that is what I mean. IMS Products has been around since 1976 and the whole time they produce top-notch products and get better all the time, of course, because they use everything they've learned up until now on the product they're making for tomorrow. IMS Products is on almost every podium finisher's motorcycle in off-road racing, and there's a reason for that. It's quality. IMS Products foot pegs are designed specifically for adventure riders. They're made in the USA. They have a lifetime warranty. You can't beat that. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, don't, don't mention the manufacturer, though. <laughs> I won't, but it, it is a serious problem, which people laugh at me. Um, all manufacturers do it. Uh, they obviously it's for visibility, high vis. Um, you know, it's like construction workers wear high vis vests. Uh, totally understand the reason behind it. But uh, we were were traveling in in Chile and Argentina, and I had this particular gear on. I won't mention who. Um, and it was a kind of a, it was a gray outfit and it had fluorescent orange um, along the top of the sleeves and on the, uh, on the shoulders. And I kept getting dive bombed um, by, by birds. And I, di- I didn't understand why. And, and I, I had changed from a plain black jacket. And as we were riding, Kathy said, you know, Spencer, I've got an idea. I, I think it's that fluorescent stuff. So I was like, yeah, sure, sure. They're colorblind or whatever, you know. You know, they don't have the vision that we do, et cetera, et cetera. No joke, Jim. We got a black permanent marker and uh, we, we scrubbed out all of the, all of the fluorescent colors and um, never got attacked again, ever. That's it. It was, it was like a fishing lure almost. 
it was like a fishing lure, really, really odd, and and never come across it before. And I, obviously, I had to, I had to contact the manufacturer, and uh, and and tell him the you know the sponsor. And I said, look, this is the situation with this jacket. And he said, ah, oh, Spencer, we never expect anything normal from you. I just hope that we don't have hundreds of people wanting to buy the jacket without the fluorescent colours. Yeah, we the, haven't got the blacked one. out look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the blacked out look. But um, they're, they're kind of used to me and, uh, the you know, the idiosyncrasies of it. So Yeah, because when you were getting upset. photographs and video for them to use in their campaigns, their advertising campaigns, of you riding with this jacket then. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And yeah. I, I knew that they'd spot it and go, well, it doesn't look like the same sort of jacket. So mm-hmm. I had to contact him. I had to contact him first about that. But, uh, you know, this, as far as jackets and clothes and gear and that is concerned, I think it's quite an important job because I'm, I'm you know, I don't mince my words. So I, I do tell them what I think because I think that's what companies want, don't they? They want feedback. On, on products, I'm, I'm on, not on sure. I think it would depend. I guess um, what they what they want. I think is publicity, right? I mean, not bad publicity. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I will counter that. What they want first of all is publicity and sales because it's a business, mm, isn't it? Of course. But at the same time, if you've got someone who's uh, uh, constantly in hot climates or riding through deserts and they find um, you know a fault with the the outfits, whether you can't remove layers or whatever. Or if boots are too tight when you get too hot, is there a way to avoid this problem? Um, you know, so I, I, I'm constantly writing to them saying, I don't like this, I don't like that. <laughs> but they put up with it. And I think it's a slow way of being able to adapt the gear over time is uh, use people who ride a lot. Yeah, definitely. And then I think we're kind of lucky in the motorcycle industry that companies do tend to react to those things. I, I think most companies are sort of, uh, well, a lot of them are riders, but but they're sort of connected with riding. I mean, if you look at other other industries, like, you know, you're buying a, a switch for your water pump or something like that, and you go and complain to the store that you went to, how there's a problem with it, that rarely gets anywhere at all. Whereas, so we're, we're lucky, I mean, you know, with um, with companies having the interest to even get you to, to try out their stuff and, and give them feedback on it, that they'll sort of react to that, make some changes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it is wonderful. Um, uh, even, even more so with Kathy. Uh, because as we as we both know, there are not a great deal of um, women's riding gear at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really cool that they've sponsored Kathy too. Um, all of her stuff. Uh, she asked for black gear, and they sent her some fluorescent pink. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, we had Here a little complaint. The again. <laughs> yeah, and we said no, no, we're sending that one back. Uh, they understood it because uh, everything we wear is basically black nowadays. But uh, she did. She didn't want the uh, the cliched pink top. Right. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, why black? I mean, because you know, if you look at it from a from a rider's point of view, black is the hottest gear you can wear in warm climates. Why do you choose black? I have absolutely no logical reason for it, Jim. Apart from I've always worn black. <laughs> I like that. And it, yeah, I just I just like it, and and also it looks quite good on film. You know, um, black is kind of a cool color. Right. So yeah, we probably we probably suffer for the art. It is. It's the hottest. I mean, it, it absorbs the sun, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But on the other hand, I mean, when you hit mountains, uh, when you go up to altitude, it's it's lovely because it's retained a bit of the heat, and you can change from thirty degrees to minus five in the space of a day. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, we we just put up with it. Uh, it's constant hydration. 
that's the main the thing. cool factor and it's this the cool yeah, factor yeah okay that's it. this, it's part this, of that so this well. is probably where you, you you have a fascination with butch cassidy is, is this some sort of connection here can you talk about that um you know i always wherever we ride anywhere i always try and find a little story for people that, that's that's kind of interesting and uh yeah, we actually went to where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid hid out. Um, obviously, they'd moved from the States. They were on the run um, from the law. Uh, they'd already robbed about four banks. And uh, they, did, they didn't change when they, they came over to South America. They decided, OK, look, we'll do a couple more robberies. They, they uh, robbed the Bank of Mexico and they got away with $30,000. And we're talking over 100 years ago, whatever it is, it's a great deal of money. Mm -hmm. And they, they fell for the, what every criminal falls for, let's do one final job and we can retire on it and we can buy a farm. So there was Butch Cassidy, there was the Sundance Kid and their, their two girlfriends. And uh, yeah, they were in Argentina and uh, Chile and they traveled extensively. But um, eventually... They got tracked down by the Mexican government and uh, there was a big shootout in, in, in a little building. They'd, they'd turned up and uh, they were a bit stupid because they'd robbed a um, gold mine, but they had stolen one of the donkeys from the gold mine. So when they went to get some accommodation, the donkey was parked outside or whatever, tethered outside, right. but it had a brand on its bottom with the name of the, of the mining company. So the owner of the accommodation was like, oh, well, you know, they've stolen this. So uh, they had to do a quick runner and they, they set up in a little house, but they got surrounded and, um, and shot at and killed. Um, so, yeah, Kathy and I went to that, went to that venue where they were. Um, oh, super interesting. I, I just love those little stories where you can build history into your riding. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes it so much more interesting, doesn't it? I mean, it really adds an element to it. And that's one thing you do in your books, stitch these stories in. And it's quite fascinating because it's it really, um, it's sort of a, a sidetrack from the trip, but it's connected as well. I, I'd like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also people. I mean, uh, the, the, the historical side of it is fantastic, but also meeting odd people. Uh, for example, I mean, in, in uh, Venezuela, once again in Venezuela, we met a guy I called him Pablo Putin because he looked like um, Putin, the president, but uh, he was also a, a cocaine dealer. So I called him Pablo Putin. Uh, very strange situation. Uh, a friend picked us up who we'd got to know over the month in Venezuela and he said, do you want to see something strange? And we were like, yeah, of course. And we drove up out of the city and eventually went into the mountains and less and less people. And then we came up to a ridiculously large gate and there were guys there with machine guns, and then we were shown through. And uh, it turned out that this was a classic sort of cocaine dealer. And I'm not joking. When we arrived there, he was standing in his garden with some hitman, Sicario-looking chap. But he had, there were two women in bikinis on horses. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cliched. <laughs> like but just there so for the scenery, you mean? Yeah, you know, yeah, just there for the scenery and to act like, a, you know, oh, I'm a cocaine dealer. Oh, I need women in bikinis, you know, on horses. <laughs> so very, very surreal. And uh, the, obviously the negative side of it was uh, he did the same thing that Pablo Escobar did. He built himself a huge um, zoo and it was pretty terrible. I mean, he had jaguars in, in cages with, with no vegetation, just concrete. And uh, 
it was pretty upsetting. Kathy ended up crying about that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's that it's that cliche thing, isn't it? I'm a, I'm a drug dealer. I need a zoo and uh, yeah. all the world's biggest cars and women in bikinis. So yeah, from our point of view, very very interesting. Um, yeah, it, it makes the trip for me. Uh, it, it's not just the riding; it, uh, animals too. So it's meeting strange people, uh, going to unusual places, risking life a little bit, and also wildlife. Totally crazy about wildlife as well. Now, when you go to see this this drug dealer, does Kathy bring the camera along? Yes, but uh, on that on that occasion, no. There was we only filmed the animals. Oh, he didn't mind that, but I d- but you don't want to swing the camera around to him, do you? Right, you got to be really careful. Does that stress her out in that situation? Yeah, I mean, it was the similar. It was similar when we went to the barrio of the return, where I told you about the naked prostitutes. We yeah. actually did get stopped because Kathy was in the back. I w- we we decided we can't go on the bike; it's way too open. Um, so we got a taxi. Uh, we made friends with this taxi driver, a young chap. He was great, and he was like, "No, no, we'll go in there." So I sat in the front with him and Kathy sat in the back and she held the camera just, you know, just above the window line, just to try and get a few really interesting shots. Uh, but we obviously got spotted because the next day we stopped. Um, uh, sorry, the next day we, we went back to do some more filming and a guy just stepped into the middle of the road and uh, leant into the car and said, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you here? And uh he, uh, we just said, oh, no, no, we're just interested in, you know, just interested in this beautiful place, blah, blah, blah. And he and said, he's where's asking the camera? where's the camera as well. Yeah. And he said, where's the camera? And we said, we don't have a camera. He said, don't be stupid. I know you had a camera. You had a camera yesterday. So um, Kathy brought it out, gave him a big smile. And he just looked at her and went, okay. And, and that was kind of that. And then after that, we were fine. Um, mm-hmm. We wandered around there for a good few weeks. So I think he'd sort of given us, given, given us the nod to the rest of the people in the area. Does the camera and filming th- this adventure ever get you guys in trouble? Um, yeah, you've got to be really careful, you know. I mean, for example, in Africa, it's very, very rude to just take people. And that's that golden rule that Kathy uses. She does. She gets very upset with other people, too. I mean, you get tourists uh, who would just, for example, just walk up to a traditional Bolivian lady and just point their camera in her face and take a photograph. And uh, I think it's incredibly rude. Mm. Uh, you know, you wouldn't want someone doing it to you, would you? Just no. walking up to you and taking a photo and running well, it's off. Un- it's unnerving, uh, to say the it's least. It's unnerving. They're wondering what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even if they're not involved with anything dodgy, it's just not polite. So Kathy always, always sort of tries to clear it with people. You know, would you mind me filming here? Do you mind if I take a photo of you? Is there any areas that you don't want us to take, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. Because, of course, it can get you in, in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. You, you spent some time on the salt flats as well in Bolivia. Oh, unbelievable place. Absolutely unbelievable. That's, that was another cave experience, actually, Jim. Uh, the salt flats... Uh, obviously they're much bigger. They're a hundred times bigger than Bonneville. People don't really realize that. A hundred times bigger than Bonneville. Now Bonneville seems huge. I know. Yeah, it's it's 13,000 square kilometers. So it's absolutely massive and and in, incredibly beautiful. It's uh, really, it's only just got a couple of 
I'd say tracks. There's no roads, you, but you can see where cars have been. So there are tracks from north to south and tracks from east to west. And you can go anywhere. Yeah, you can pretty much go anywhere, but they tell you to obviously stick to the main route. Mm. Um, but being me, <laughs> I decided, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. Let's go off and just get into the absolute middle of nowhere so that whatever direction you look, you can't see a car, you can't see anything. And, um, yeah, we did that and we had a massive blowout and it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, I've, I've never had anything like that before. Um, a few minutes, you know, that there's, a, there's this stupid tradition, Jim, that I do not recommend to anybody, is that people try, ride the salon naked. Um, it's not good for sunburn and it's also not good if you come off because, the, you know, that's, that salt is very, very unforgiving. It's extremely hard. It's basically like hitting an asphalt road um, that's made of sandpaper. That's how bad it is. It's like it's designed to rip your skin off. It's designed to hurt you. And it's got yeah. these hexagonal shapes on it with um, a lip around the hexagon, which is rock solid too, you know. So, yeah, that tradition of riding naked is very silly. So slap on the, slap on the, on the wrist for anyone who does that. And the other one, which is even more stupid, is people try to ride for one minute with their eyes closed. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know, is very stupid. I mean, you can understand the, the attraction. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're not going to hit anything. But, I mean, chances are that, you know, well, I, and there are soft spots yeah. in it, aren't there? Yeah, there are. There are soft spots. But it, I, I also, what you said is, is totally correct. You're, you've basically been given a huge racetrack. There are no traffic lights. There are no rules. There are no policemen around. And I totally get it. I mean, it's thrilling, isn't it? You can just go totally straight, drive as, you know, drive as fast as you want, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, sen sens sensibility needs to take over. And I also made a mistake. I also failed. I, I went off where we shouldn't have. And I was also going a little bit quick. Well, quick for me is 80 kilometers an hour. <laughs> yeah, but you're two me. up on a bike. You're probably overloaded all the time, aren't you? Like for the, for the, for the overall. Yeah, we are pretty much overloaded. Yeah. For the bike. I'm sure if you check the gross vehicle weight, you're over that with two people, all your gear. Oh, absolutely. Cause we've got the two panniers, we've got the sausage bag, we've got the tent, we've got the sleeping bags, we've got the camera equipment, we've got our clothes and we've got our tools and also um, spare parts and that sort of thing. That might be partly to do with the blowout in the cellar. Uh, that we were overloaded. But I think it's more, I'd rather blame it on the person that changed my inner tube. Because <laughs> I normally do it, I normally do it myself, but a chap did it for us. I was tired out and I was like, go for it. And I think he must have twisted it. Um, because it didn't just pop, it blew extremely loud and the whole tire came off. Off, right the, off rim. the rim. I've, I've never, I've ne yeah, I've never experienced that before. Mm. So, I mean, I, I was having real problems trying to stop the bike because the brakes weren't working. And uh, I thought, oh my God, here we are, we're coming off. And then I just got a slap on the back of my head. And it was Kathy saying, are we ever going to stop? <laughs> 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 Which is typical of her, but she levels me out and, and is very organized in these times, you know. She, um, straight into action stations, we, we came off, but it wasn't bad. So we had to change the tire. So, so, so sorry, slow first, down. You, you, you got almost stopped and that's when you came off the bike. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then we're there in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So we're a really good team. I have to admit that when something goes wrong, we just kick in and, and do what we need to do. Uh, it, there's no shade in the salar. Uh, it is totally white. So you've got that reflective heat. 
So although it's a very, it's very high, it's 3,600 meters. So it's not boiling hot there, but the sun is an extreme problem, as you can imagine. The UV intensity is incredible. Um, so Kathy set up the tent immediately, uh, so that could protect us. And then I got to work on uh, getting the tire off and, and getting it fixed. But unfortunately, my compressor decided to fail right in the middle of the cellar. So, I mean, I got the, I got the whole thing. Uh, it was a, probably a six inch tear um, in, in the inner tube, but uh, there's a way around that. You can stitch it with needle and thread. And when you stitch the long cut, like a scar on a human being, then you can put a patch over that. And that, that is really interesting, but it makes perfect sense. You just have to have some fishing line and, and maybe what do you use for a needle? Yeah, that's absolutely it. You, you use an industrial needle. Industrial needle. Hmm. That's uh, that yeah, is a so handy it, it, And it works. I thing. mean, it, it's very handy. Yeah, obviously, I mean, you, you, you know, you sandpaper it off, you clean it out really nicely, then you just stitch it, take your time, uh, use a whole load of glue and, and make the, the secondary patch a lot bigger. And yeah, it works. I mean, I, I rode on that for a long, long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that happened. We got that fixed, uh, but the compressor wouldn't work. Um, so we stuffed some clothes in there and uh, we rode off. Hey, hang on um, one second. Five... So you're, you're in the middle of nowhere here, in, in the middle of, of the salt flats in Bolivia. Yes. There's, there's no one around you at all. Chances of anyone coming by you is probably very, very slim at this point because you're not on a track, as you mentioned. Your, your compressor yes. blows. Uh, it quits working. I understand you had a bit of a fit about that uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and, and lost your cool, but understandably, because the situation is kind of dire at this point, because this isn't just an inconvenience. This is life-threatening. Yeah, it was. It was the two things you pointed out. Yeah, uh, there would not be people coming through there because they do stick to the tracks like sensible people, not like Spencer and Kathy people. Hmm. So an error, a mistake, but um, yeah, I just wanted it for the footage. And unfortunately, one of our one of our water bottles flew off while we were riding as well. So that was a bloody nuisance. Right. So like like a pair of idiots, we're in the middle of nowhere with limited water. And it's a basic mistake that I shouldn't have made bloody 10 years ago, let alone now. <laughs> After so, all um, this yeah, experience yeah, in miles. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no backup for the pump either. That, that's what I thought of. I thought you don't have any, any pressurized canisters or anything like that. I mean, obviously. Mm. No, no, I don't. That, that was a bit stupid. It, you know, the thing is, it worked. My compressor worked for nine years. <laughs> well, well, and that's what I was wondering. Do you get complacent? Like even you with all this travel experience, both you and Kathy, all this travel experience you have, are there times when you find yourself getting complacent because you've done the same things? Like we always talk about the extras you need to carry with you and having yeah. everything double use and everything. Do you get complacent after a while when you've used your compressor for nine years and it's never failed you? Was that what, what it was? Definitely. It's definitely, it's, it is easy to take your eye off the ball sometimes. You know, you, you use an inner tube and then um, you can't get hold of one and you go, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll just ride. And of course, you're going to get a flat tire because that's the day that you don't have an inner tube. So, yeah, you need, to, you need to keep on top of things. The thing I'm totally, totally fixated with is water now having enough water. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just because of the places that we go. And, and as you know, Jim, we don't use a GPS. Um, we've got paper maps uh, and we still do that. I still don't have a GPS. So you end up in places where you're going to need water. So I, I'm totally, totally paranoid about that. We always have about five liters now. A GPS would have helped you so much in this situation, but but what I think uh, what you did with that rear tire to try and your decision to get back, I, I think was kind of ingenious. Um, can you talk about what you did to get going and, and how it worked out? Yeah, you you 
basically you just stuff all your clothes inside the tire uh, just to give it a slight bit of rigidity. Oh, um, a point you mentioned earlier, a, a bicycle pump, it would probably be the way to go. Yeah. Uh, so if your compressor doesn't work, carry a, a little bicycle pump. It takes a long, long time to do it, but you can get it done. So that would be a, a possibility. Um, yeah, so you just fill the tires to try and get some rigidity on it. And we were, what we did was, of course, there's, like you had mentioned earlier, we've got so much gear. So we left everything. We took both panniers off, uh, the tents, the sleeping bags, everything, the tool, everything. It Cameras. was just me and everything. Yeah. Wow. Just me and Kathy on the bike. And uh, we just thought, we've got to do this. You know, this, there's just no way. And it took us about five hours and uh, we came to an island. Uh, sounds strange when I say the word island, Jim. I need to explain. Mm -hmm. the, the Salar is an ancient lake. And actually underneath all that salt is a lake. And what they have is they have two mountain ranges that actually stick out of the salt and they are called the islands because they're basically islands in a salt flat. And uh, this is the place where they have the only place where you can get water and there's a sort of a little rundown cafe. Um, and that's where we had to get to. Why, why is that there? Why is there uh, some sort of civilization on an island in the middle of a salt okay, flat? Uh, because the, the salt flat, I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it is very touristy because it's just like being on another planet. So in the center of the Salar, um, halfway through the touristy route, they've got this little cafe where people can stop and stick their flag up and um, walk around, um, in the cactus plantation and, you know, take some photos of uh, perspective. You know, they have these funny photos where you can hold your hand, you can hold your motorbike in the palm of your hand because it's this optical illusion on the sure. salon. Yeah. So a lot of people go there to do that and to do the naked thing, etc. But it's just photographs in the salon don't look like anything else in the world. So I can understand why it's a tourist place. So yeah, that's the reason they've got that little cafe in the center there, but it's very, very basic, There's, uh, which I love, which I love. I, mean, I wouldn't want it to be super touristy. They have also, they have a salt hotel, uh, which is near the entrance. That's kind of interesting that the whole hotel is made of salt. But, but you don't recommend staying there though? I don't recommend staying there, unfortunately, because they have a problem with their um, drainage, let's say, mm. with their waste water and their waste products. So it was a bit smelly. Right. But a very, very interesting, a very interesting thing to come across. Um, unbelievable. And they make carvings uh, out of salt. And the, the saddest thing for me is that the, the place is getting totally ripped up because uh, it is one of the highest providers of lithium in the whole world, the Saladar Uni. Yeah, which that's is crazy. absolutely vital for batteries. And that is the new, like, you know, the, the, um, the, all your new batteries, your, your electric cars, our phones, everything. I mean, it is everywhere. Yeah, there we go. Elon Musk has, uh, yeah. has made the seller worse. <laughs> no, that, that, that is the problem. Uh, there are Chinese, um, Chinese construction companies that are, are ripping it up uh, massively, pretty much in the same way as the Amazon. Um, and it's a lot smaller than the Amazon. So, I think it's going to be something that we're not going to be able to appreciate in a couple of hundred years. I think it'll be gone. Because didn't you say that there's there's 75% of the world's lithium, I, I think, in that? That's absolutely correct. So you can, you can imagine with the burst and rise in technology, which is only going to get more and more and more, 
unless they find an alternative to this lithium, uh, the whole place is going to get dug up. And, and apart from that, of course, for salt. But uh, the, the salt digging doesn't seem to have the same effect mm. as the, the hunting for lithium. But, but anyway, so you found the island. Basically now you're, you're on a bike with, with no back tire and all your gear is left behind. What do you do? Well, yeah, that was a funny one. Um, we went out and just to give you an example of how vast this place is, the, the guys that were working there, one of, them, one of the guys was about 60 and he'd been working there for 29 years. So, I mean, he knew the place like the back of his hand because you have to have uh, guides, you know, basically the tourists, you'll take four of you in a Land Rover and he'll know where to go. He'll take you to the islands, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I common, commandeered a, a couple of these chaps, um, Bolivian guides, and I said, look, this is what happened. Here's my bike here. Uh, our stuff is somewhere out there. And uh, we went out and it, it took us three days, Jim. But well, so, hang on, go day by day because you thought you knew where it was at first, right? I thought I thought I knew where it was, so I headed off with the guys. Kathy stayed, um, Kathy stayed in, uh, at the island, and uh, I went off, and huh, I didn't know. Everything just looked exactly the same to me, and they were surprised themselves. But it, it's so massive, so we kept going, kept kept going. Then we went back, and on the third day. So hang on, you went out one day, you found nothing. Yep. You went out another yep. day and found nothing, yep. thinking you know where it was going to go. And this is day three. I, I think at this point they were ready to quit, weren't they? They were ready to quit, but actually they were super wonderful guys. It, it was incredible. Um, Kathy had some sort of uh, epiphany. We were all sitting there on the third morning and I was like, okay, guys, one more go. And she said, it's over there. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, I'm pretty sure if you just look at that mountain there, if you just go a millimeter to the right and just head straight towards there, I'm pretty sure our stuff's there. And we did. And we went there. And after an hour and a half, maybe, I can't remember exactly, two hours, we saw this little dot in the distance. And it was our tent. It was our tent that was, that was covering all the stuff. And it was so brilliant because... Uh, the guys were like, yay! They were all like screaming and so happy. And we stopped, jumped out, and we all, we all hugged each other. I mean, it was only material possession. But I think it's because we'd spent that time together, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. those two days and two we got days. to know each other and we chatted about life. And then on the third day, we were kind of like friends already. Wow. That, that is and just then when incredible. We got on, it was. It was incredible. And then on the way back, I said, okay, listen, guys, just, just keep a straight face. Just let's pretend to Kathy that we haven't got anything that we failed again, okay? So they were like, yeah, yeah, okay. When we got within 20, 30 meters of Kathy, they went, yeah, and they all jumped up again and leant out the window. <laughs> like, we've got it, we've got it. I was like, guys, man, keep the joke up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were cool. And you know what, Jim? They didn't want any money. They didn't. Three days, no. well, two and Can a half days. Can you believe that? Wow. Yeah. Wow. We bought them lunch and I did give them some money, Jen, because I mean, that's manners, you know? Yeah. But isn't that cool? Yeah. You yeah, know, just to amazing. give up your time. And it was their truck. It was their truck. It was their fuel. And, and, and you think of the situation, I mean, like in North America, you understand immediately when somebody comes to you with this problem, I have you over a barrel. Therefore, I can charge you just about anything I want for what we're about to do. And they could have easily done that. Yeah, but totally correct because they run the place, don't they? Yeah. I mean, they could have said, oh, no, no, this is totally out of the ordinary. It's $200 a day. And what would you do? Yeah, well, you pay it. Because, I mean, you're talking about a lot of equipment. 
Mm-hmm. That, what, what do you do though? I mean, you're, so you're back there, you've got your gear, but you have no back tire. And the other thing is I want to know is how did Kathy know and why didn't she tell you in the day one? That's what I said to her. Yeah. Um, why didn't you say on day one? She just uh, said she was going to leave it to the boys. <laughs> you, you know, that's, there's so much I can read into this. <laughs> I know, me too, me there's too. So don't much. Worry I mean, after two it. days, it's like, okay, look it, I'm going to have to set these guys straight. <laughs> yeah, they don't know what they're doing. They're yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it was fine. She actually just said, no, I don't know why. I just got this sort of epiphany that, that I recognized that that sort of viewpoints that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, landmark. So yeah, absolutely brilliant it was. Um, but yeah, then we were, of course, we were stuck on the island. Um, and uh, those guys just continued with their absolutely wonderful behavior. They loaded our bike onto a truck and we took it to Uyuni. Uyuni is the main town. It's sort of the gateway to the Salar, uh, the actual town of Uyuni. And um, we had to wait for a um, a tire to come from Europe, which took three weeks. But but you did get your tire and, and you were off. And Yeah, we did get our tire and we sorted out. The problem is obviously, I mean, a lot of the bikes um, in, in, in developing countries are very small. So you've got 125s, 150s, and they've all got these biscuit tires, haven't they? they haven't. Yeah. So, you know, you can't get hold of um, 130, 80, 17s or 21-inch Fords. So um, that's one of the biggest struggles, actually. But I do see... I do see a lot of overlanders and uh, motorcycle riders loaded up like they've got their whole house on there, including spare tires, two new spare tires. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. What's the downside, do you think, of, of traveling with I, your spare tires? I, I just, you know, you, you can always find something or, or some tire or a smaller size. Or I just don't think, if you're going on a long trip, uh, I mean, if it's just for a week or 10 days or something, it makes sense to carry it because you'll have that one situation. But if you're traveling for three, four months, you just don't want that uh, to carry those extra tires just on that one off chance that you'll break down somewhere where you can't get. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, obviously, I'm in a slightly more positive position because if, if, they, if they hadn't sent a tire, I would have been stuck for longer. And some people can't afford to be stuck for a day or two days or three days. And that's probably why they carry more than they should. Mm, yeah. So yes, it's a difficult one. It's pretty inconvenient carrying. I've actually never carried, oh, maybe I did carry a spare tire for a while, but it wasn't for travel. It, I was just carrying it because I bought it. Pretty yeah. inconvenient to, to carry. It is, it is. I think it's one of the biggest problems that every single new motorcyclist makes. Every single adventure rider is taking three times what you need. Mm, yeah. Uh, I, I always remember... Um, Name dropping again. You obviously know Austin Vince. Of course, we're um, on show. Uh, M- Mondo and Juro. Yeah, he he came when I very very first time I left in two thousand and nine uh, from England to do Africa. He came down with lowest price to see me off, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. But uh, the BBC interviewed him, and I always remember what he said. He said, uh, "Yep, all good. Uh, the real deal. Spencer Conway's the real deal." But it looks like he just threw every single thing out of his house and it just landed on his bike. <laughs> and he will learn. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, all right. You know, and oh God, it's so true, Jim, you know. Uh, pack everything you possibly want, then halve it, and then halve it again. Wow. Okay. And then you'll probably have what you need. 
you know, all these things like water filters, water purifiers. I mean, the list is endless, isn't it? There's always people that want to sell something. Oh, there's so um, much. And, and I mean, and yeah, you think that while there's a possibility, I, I might need this, I'll just throw in this one small thing. Yeah. And that happens over and over and over as you pack. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and it always boils down to the basics. You know, it's the total basics, duct tape, cable ties, those kind of things. That's what you need and some decent tools. But um, obviously there's always people trying to sell the latest purifier, the latest jacket, the latest gloves, the latest gimmick for lifting your bike or the latest side stand. And I get it, but I, I prefer to just roll it down to more basics, you know. Mm -hmm. The less you have, the less the less can go wrong. And also you don't look like a ridiculously rich target, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and that, that goes for having a brand new motorcycle and brand new gear as well. Yeah, don't say that. Don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a good point because you can also buy fake um, mud, oh, can't you? <laughs> you, you best rest sells that, don't they? Uh, uh, I think that's hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I, just uh, my advice, keep it to a minimum. You know, you don't need three different ways of finding a route, for example. You don't need a phone and a GPS and this and that. You know, mm -hmm. you just stick stick to the one thing and, and, and that'll do the job, you know. But a GPS uh, would have done you an incredible service there. You would have make, marked a waypoint where you left your stuff and you would have went out and got it. Now, you wouldn't have had a story to tell, but it, it would have been much more effective. Uh, totally agree with you, Jim. But like you said, I wouldn't have had a story to tell. And, and to be totally honest, in the 13 years, the best, best times have been when we've just got lost. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, I mean, really lost, not pretend lost, uh, where you just, it's just wonderful. Things always seem to happen. And, uh, you know, I mean, Maybe it's a reaction against against my dad because my dad was like one of these people that would be up in the middle of the night with a head torch on looking at maps, um, planning the next day, you know, when you're on a holiday with your family. <laughs> so, <laughs> to make sure that know, it all goes as planned. Yes, yes. He was very, very much like that. And right. I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of the opposite. I prefer to throw a bit of a spanner in the works. It's actually my nickname is Spanner. Um, yeah, throw a spanner in the works and just, just take it a bit more roughly and... Uh, you're right. I mean, the GPS, we, but then we wouldn't have had them jumping and hugging and we wouldn't have got to know those guys. And no, we for sure. Kathy yeah. couldn't have, Kathy couldn't have gloated at us. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it's almost like it's self-inflicted pain or, or at least discomfort. It's self-inflicted adventure. You could say. Yeah, you're making it sound that. like a psychological problem. Well, it could, it could be very well. But the, you know, the thing is interesting, Spencer, the other day I, I was out and I've, I've got a problem with my GPS mount right now. So, and I usually okay. have it right on there. It's a beautiful GPS by uh, Trail Tech. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't have it and I don't have anything. And I'm riding around in an area that I don't know because I don't know most of the areas around here because I'm sure. fairly new to the area. But I did just that. I explored and I saw a river and I thought, oh, I, this is the river and I'm going to turn here and I followed the river. And I, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where I was. I had you know, just a rough idea, not like you're kind of lost. But I mean, yeah, it was sure. a pretty neat adventure. And I thought about it when I came back. I, I thought, you know, without the GPS, it was pretty Because if I had had the GPS, I would have stuck to my route. I would have got where I was going. Absolutely. I didn't get where I was going, but I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. You see, I think it's, it's the same, you know, when you're sitting on a train and uh, you just see a row of 500 people on their phones. It's just become so normal. Uh, and, I, and people become so reliant so quickly. For example, uh, let's just say you're heading into a town at the end of a day and you're extremely tired, you've been riding hard, um, 
raining, whatever, you know. And the easiest thing to do is to what? Is just to look up a hotel sure. or a hostel or something. Um, and you'll drive yourself there and you'll be there within 10 minutes. Uh, and it's so easy to become addicted to that rather than think, oh, I'm so tired now. I've got to start asking people where's some nice, but I like doing that. Um, spending that extra 40 minutes just saying to people, hey, where's a, where's a like super cheap place, but not the cheapest in the world. And then you get talking and they say something like, come to my house or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and Otherwise, your head is just buried in your in your GPS and in your in your idea of I've got to get my room. I'm tired. I've got to get my room. But it's often those last moments that are, that are fun. You know the the story that we just talked about with right. with you being out in the salt flats. You know, it's a great yes. story. It could have been different. I mean, you could have been injured. That 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 tire blowing is pretty catastrophic. I've never had that happen before, but that's pretty catastrophic. You know, no brakes. You're loaded two up. I mean, that could have been serious. You could have been injured and and totally. and, and ended up um, well dead. I mean, I was going to say hospitalization, but really dead. Uh, but I mean, even hospitalization. How do you handle that? You mentioned insurance. Do you do you have insurance for that? No, we don't have insurance. This is an interesting one because there are a lot of yeah. people who will say, if you can't afford travel insurance, you can't afford to travel. Yeah, no, I understand. I shouldn't have even said that on radio. We are trying to organize it at the moment. Um, the thing is, you know, there are very few companies, you're in the same world as me, there are very few companies that uh, will insure you, especially if I'm honest about what I do, you see, mm -hmm. because I'm not going down the Pan-American Highway. And they, they sort of see it as an extreme sport. A lot of the companies that I spoke to in the UK, uh, they said, no, we can't do this. You're traveling alone. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's, we, we can't cover this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are companies out there and I'm, we're actually researching into it now, 13 years later. And you can't lie. You, you can't go and tell them that, no. oh, that's not what I'm doing because then you're not going to be covered anyway. No, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I'm totally direct with them and they, they always just say, no, we can't do it. Uh, you, you can sometimes, you can get insurance uh, sometimes in the countries you arrive in um, at the borders, which can be a temporary insurance for when you're in that particular country. So that's mm -hmm. okay. Uh, but I mean, medical insurance, I mean, that, that, that's killed us, of course, because I mean, I've had malaria five times. Um, Kathy had a, a very, very severe blood poisoning. Um, she was in hospital in Colombia for a month. And uh, that cost us an arm and a leg, really. Well, not literally an arm and a leg, if you know <laughs> what I mean, but uh, cost a lot. I mean, you, you've had injuries. You, you've done stuff like you just mentioned there with Kathy going to the hospital. You had a, a knee dislocation. Can, can you tell that story about you dislocating your knee? Okay. We were riding along in, in everybody's nightmare, sand. And this was on the, from the Salt Flats to a place called Tupiza. And it's actually on the Dakar route. It, it is part of the Dakar rally when it was in, in South America. And obviously, you know, it's iconic. It's something you want to do, like mm -hmm. Route 66 or whatever. You know, let's go on a Dakar route. And I was really enjoying it. It was, it was wonderful riding. It was very, very hot. And uh, we hit this very, very deep sand. And there was one particular section where there was a loose, a loose section with a big, big depression, but I couldn't see it. And we just rode straight into it. And we've got these solid panniers and the pannier smacked me on the knee and it sent my kneecap around to the side. Mm. So, uh, you know, Kathy's much more level-headed than me. 
So I was lying on the road going, that's it, it's over, we're finished, I may as well sell the bike, you know, our <laughs> dreams are done. gone. Look at, yeah, look at me, I'm done for. She was like, pull yourself together, you know. Um, and then we got this hair-raising trip with this chap. He was in a, a combi, you know, combi van. I don't know what you call them. Um, uh, like a, a camper van? Yeah, and he, he had absolutely no interest in looking at the road. He was only interested in looking at Kathy in the back seat. So uh, it was it was terrible. I mean, we had drop-offs on either side. He was going in the sand. And uh, that was much worse than any ride we've ever done. Uh, and when we, when we arrived at the hospital, I was so pleased to be alive. I didn't care that if, if I had a knee or not. Um, but they were great. The, the hospital was great. They, they knocked it back in. They gave me a cortisone injection straight into it, which is very pleasant. Um, and then, yeah, within a few days, we were riding again. Yeah, but they told you not to ride, though, at, the, at that point. Yeah, they told me not to ride. But, I mean, I've, I've ridden with... I've ridden with malaria for a couple of weeks through the center of the Amazon. And, um, you know, accidents and illnesses are something that follow me around. But it's a great reason to have Kathy because it was the same. It was the same thing. I was going through the Amazon. I was moaning, oh, Kathy, I feel ill. Oh, I've got no strength. I've got this and that. And she was like, I need a real man. I don't need a wimp. I don't need a wimp. So I was like, oh, yeah, right. So I was so pleased when I got to hospital. Well, we got to Peru. We got through the Amazon. But I, I really, I, I felt grim. And um, we, I collapsed in, in the street in, in Peru. And uh, just by pure luck, there was a shaman, like a traditional healer chap there. I'd gone into sort of shaking convulsions because of temperature. Mm. Uh, I couldn't control my body temperature. And he got out this weird concoction from uh, a glass jar and uh, rubbed it all over my back. Within 10 minutes, I felt a little lot better. You have to excuse me. I've got uh, three cats and uh, two chickens in this room right now. What are, what are they doing? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. What are they doing? Uh, the cat, yeah, the, the, the cat is sneezing and the chickens are trying to get in to get some food. So Kathy's just dealing with that. I'm sorry about that. No, you have to feed the chickens. <laughs> anyway, so, I, I get that. Yeah, we have to feed the chicken. But um, yeah, to get back to that, uh, sorry, uh, I digressed a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, we got through the Amazon and I was uh, moaning and then this traditional healer came and rubbed whatever it was on my back, I don't know. And they took me to hospital and um, they said, yes, you've got malaria. I was so happy. I said, I told you, Kathy, you have got a real man. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't just whining, you were seriously ill. Yeah, I was ill. I was ill. Yeah. But I've, I've had malaria five times now. Wow. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very, very, very interesting illness because it affects you psychologically. Um, it's, it's very weird. And, and I kind of, I, in some strange way, I kind of enjoy the, the mental challenge of it. You describe yourself as a doer, not a planner. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a believer in over-planning. I, I really honestly believe that everything that we've done, all of the best times have been times that have been unpredictable. And, and that's why I always say to people that everyone, you know, adventure riders, they always go, oh, yes, I'm going to South America. I'm going to do from Alaska to Australia. I'm going to do the Pan American. And yes, it is iconic. But I really recommend to people just even if you're doing that and that's your comfort zone, just pick one day or two days where you go somewhere else. So head off 
and get onto some dirt or go to some tiny mountain village or, you know, somewhere where tourists wouldn't normally go. Because the people are very, very different when you're in a non-tourist area. They are much, much more friendly. And I think a lot of people think that it would be the opposite. Uh, they, they fall for this thing that, oh my God, okay, if it's not touristy, then it can't be safe. Um, I find the absolute opposite is true. Uh, when people, like once again in Venezuela, they hadn't seen tourists at all. So they were so pleased and so proud of their country and, and understandably so amazing, um, that you're, you, you know, you're greeted with open arms. And it's this, it's this same old story. When you arrive at one town, they'll always go to, oh, our town is wonderful. But when you go to the next town, you'll get killed. <laughs> and you know, it, it happens all the way around the world. I even had it in Mauritania. When I was on the Africa trip, I was going between Senegal and uh, Mauritania. And I got to the Senegalese border and the chap said, what do you think of Senegal? I said, oh, it's been absolutely fantastic. It's been wonderful. I, you know, I've had the greatest time. And he said, oh, I'm really glad you enjoyed it because they're going to kill you in Mauritania. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, those people are bad. Those people are bad. And then you head there and they're just, just as wonderful. That, you know, the next bunch is just as wonderful. So it's like, you know, it's this insular thing that people have. But it's fun to find out. The, the stories that we talked about here while we've been sitting here chatting are, are in your latest book. And the book is called The Zimbabwean Psychiatrist Hat by Spencer James Conway. Yes, and it is. It is a great read. <laughs> it is a really good read. It's a, and not only for people, because this is this covers your, your circumnavigating South America, but it's not only for somebody who's planning to go to South America, because if you are, it's a must read. But anyone, because it, it's adventure, it's side stories, it's, um, when you say you don't pull any punches, you don't pull any punches on yourself, which which I, I like. You're you're very quick to laugh at yourself. Oh, thank you. And, and uh, so you get the real story, I guess, is what I feel like. And it, and it just draws you in. Very, very good book. Uh, I really appreciate that, Jim. You know, it, it was a very different book to, to the Africa one. The Africa one was more kind of like a travelogue uh, in order from country to country. You could kind of follow it like a map. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the, the Zimbabwean psychiatrist hat was kind of 23 more individual sort of stories that stuck with me. Um, so, you know, if you, if, if you want to read a book where it'll give you the geographical route and how to get around South America, it's not the book for you. But I, I might be totally wrong, but I, I feel like you could probably read it even if you weren't a motorcyclist. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. It's This is a story of because adventure. It's, it's a story of interest. There's And, and also the other thing is I, I really like the way, and I, I don't want to go on and on about the way you write, uh, in particular in this book, but um, the way you stitched in information about the places that you're at you learn so much with it and we all like to learn. So it's, it's not just like, you know, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you met this person, you're learning yeah. about the areas that you're talking about. And I just love the approach you did on this book. Uh, I think it's a great job. Oh, thank you so much. Fantastic. Yeah. No, the, uh, it's the same with me. That's what I hope to do. You know I mean? For example, just talking about borders. Uh, I think there's one, there's one chapter called the naked, naked Peruvian customs officer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a lot of overlanders and um, adventure motorcyclists, they, they look at borders and customs as the ultimate nightmare. As, oh my God, we're coming to a border, coming to a custom, we're getting delays, there's going to be problems. I have found that those are some of the most hilarious and thought-provoking meetings that you can ever have. And mm -hmm. um, One of my funniest ones is not in this book, but in the Africa book. I was, I was in Sudan. 
and uh, the Sudan-Egypt border, and this guy turned up, and he was like, can I see your passport, please? So I gave him my passport, and uh, he stamped it, all that business. He said, uh, if you can just wait here in the office, someone will be here in 20 minutes to check papers and your carnet de passage, etc. So I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And uh, yeah, 20, 25 minutes, this chap came in, and he was called me over, and I went up. I looked at him and a bit strangely, and I was like, what is this? And what had happened was, it was the same guy, he'd put on a hat and some glasses, <laughs> and he'd gone round the back of the office, gone around the building and come in another entrance, and he was pretending that he didn't know me, that he'd never seen me before in my life, and I just had a laughing fit, because I felt like saying, I know it's you, I know it's you, but uh, yeah, he didn't appreciate my laughing fit. But it, it's those kind of things, and uh, I mean, another, another occasion the, uh, when we were in Peru, we turned up at this total, there was nothing there. There was a tiny hut and, and the customs office and then a little bridge that separates the two countries. So uh, between, sorry, Peru and Ecuador. And we went to the Peruvian customs officer and he's, we went in and he said, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I just need to do something. And he, he walked across the road and uh, he took all his clothes off, every, everything. Uh, totally naked, hung a hose pipe over a branch of a tree and started having a shower in front of me and Kathy. Um, very bizarre. exhibitionist. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was very, very bizarre. And uh, yeah, he was, you know, um, cleaning the nether regions a bit too much. So we just started talking to each other, trying, trying not to look in that direction. And yeah, when he'd finished, he looked in the mirror of a broken car and brushed his hair, got his clothes back on came back and was like, okay, right, I'm ready to stamp your passports. Um, so, <laughs> what was uh, that, that was weird. all about? And then when we all, I don't know, maybe he was an exhibitionist or something. Or, he know, had to have been, at the very least. He had to have been. But uh, it was funny because there was that, and we were giggling about that. But then when we went through to the next one, there was a guy in like a, to the Ecuador side, there was like a guy in a Hawaiian shirt and he was dancing around. This is the customs officer. And uh, it was about, I think about half past nine in the morning. And uh, we went to get our passport sent by him and he went, oh no, it's lunchtime. So I went, lunchtime, half past nine, 10 o'clock. He said, no, 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 I'm very hungry. I'm very hungry. So he walked across the road and he went to like a little hut um, that was just, uh, you know, had a, an open fire and they were cooking some food there. And uh, we sat for about half an hour. And I said to Kathy, look, this guy's taking his time over lunch. So... Uh, let's just go over and get a soft drink and some food. So we popped over there. We ordered some food. It was amazing food and uh, a drink. And uh, immediately he was like, okay, when you're ready, I can, uh, I can do your paperwork. And what we found out was that it was his wife that uh, owned <laughs> this, little, this little street, you know, street store. Right. So obviously it was like his, it was his modus operandi that every time someone turned up, it was either breakfast or lunch or dinner time. Right. No matter when anyone turned up. So you'd go over and buy something off his wife and then then he'd stamp your passport. But so we had the naked chap there and then we had him. And, and then you, you drive off and you're in such good spirits because it's so fun, you know. Yeah, you don't feel you don't feel ripped off from that, from the meal thing. You just feel yeah. like it's kind of funny. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not at all. And and I can tell you honestly, I mean, over over 130 countries never really had any hassle at any borders. Um, just very, very entertaining times, really. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, you've got to take... The delays are part of the journey, the, the, as the famous saying says. 
it's books like like this you've written that make me glad that you're out there doing this. I mean, I actually care that you're out there doing this because I want to read another book. Anyway. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. I never thought I'd, I'd enjoy writing, Jim, you know. Uh, I mean, I am a teacher, but that doesn't mean anything, does it? Well, uh, not, not the yeah. way you started. You started as a teacher. Teachers are usually sensible. Then you dump the teacher job to go ride a motorcycle around the world. I don't know. There's a disconnect there. Yeah, there is definitely. <laughs> but uh, as long as I enjoy it and as long as people want to want to read it, then then I'll just crack on. Um, it would be nice to have a, a book for each continent and um, programs for every continent. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Hey, Spencer, before I let you go, where can people yeah. see the videos that you produce? Ah, oh, okay. Uh, the easiest way is just to go onto my website. And uh, it's spencer-conway.com. Um, and then from there, you can click on videos. And that will bring up the programs. Uh, there's also stuff on YouTube. So, yeah, that's the best way to go about it. And there's also a very old-fashioned blog on uh, my website, which has had over a million people on it. So people still like reading. Uh, it's run by my father, which I'm very proud of. Uh, he's been doing that, helping me out to, to fill that in. Right. Well, Spencer, I, I've enjoyed speaking with you, as I always do. It's, it's been great. Thanks very much, Spencer. I really sure. appreciate it. Uh, absolute pleasure. Nice to be here, Jim. And say hello to Elizabeth, please. That was Spencer Conway from his temporary home in Mexico with his chickens and cat. His book on his South American circumnavigation is called The Zimbabwean's Psychiatrist Hat. Now, you can get it through his website at spencer-conway.com. We've got a link to his website in the show notes. We also have some photos from Spencer, which I think you should see from some of the adventures that he's been on. We also have a link to the episode where we had Spencer on, where he told about him and Kathy being kidnapped in Panama. If you haven't heard that, that is definitely one to listen to. It's, it's not only interesting, but it's scary as well. All that in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you to Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Very cool stickers. And by the way, very high quality stickers. Like we actually don't do so well on the $10 donation, to be honest with you, but they're very high quality stickers. And, and that's what's important to me because I want you so, to stick something on your bike that is a decent sticker, not um, not some cheap thing that's going to fade very quickly or, or peel off in the next rainstorm. But So anyway, so $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our raw show. That is the other show that we do. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately, found everywhere that you find podcasts. And uh, if you've got a, a story idea you, or you want to hear something, get a topic idea, 
all that is at our website. You just drop by our website and then you click on the contact button. There's lots to see there. And there's show notes for every episode. In case you have never been to our website, you should really go have a look because there's a lot of information there. And there's a lot of people visited every day to look at those show notes, look at the links, the photographs that are in there. Like you'll see photographs of Spencer today and the link to that other episode that I mentioned that you definitely want to listen to if you haven't heard it already. Spencer and Kathy getting kidnapped in Panama. That is, uh, that's that's really a, an interesting story. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I really do appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next week. My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>